This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. I can't think of another time in my lifetime where billions of people are going through a very similar experience. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Cities and urban centers are at the forefront of the fight against the COVID-19 pandemic. From dealing with the challenges associated with treating large numbers of people to handling the loss of revenue. I spoke with Los Angeles Deputy Mayor of International Affairs, Nina Hachigian, about how her city is handling the challenges and about how cities are cooperating with each other. Nina, welcome to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Thanks so much for being with me virtually. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So what is it like on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic in Los Angeles? It's intense. It's it's intense. Um, we are, you know, working 24-7, lots of us doing jobs that we weren't doing before. It feels a lot better now than it did at the beginning. We, you know, we still have a lot of hard work to do, but we're fairly clear now on what we're doing and, and who's doing it. In terms of our cases, as of yesterday, we had 15,140 cases in LA County, which is a county of 10 million people. And the city of LA within that county is about 4.1 million people. And we've had 7,000 cases or right around 7,000 cases. And uh, in the county, we've, hit, we've had 663 deaths. Those numbers are incredible, just as they are all around the rest of the country. Yeah. As the mayor likes to say, there are people behind each of those numbers, and we try to always keep that in mind. It's very important to keep that in mind. What are some of the biggest challenges that the city faces right now in handling the pandemic? Just to give you one second on on LA as a city, you know, we are extraordinarily diverse. We have about 38% of our population who is foreign-born. We have several dozen of the largest diaspora populations in the United States, some of the biggest um, in the world, the fourth busiest airport, you know, pre-pandemic, and the largest port in the Western Hemisphere in a very multi-sectoral economy. So all of which is to say we're very open to the world and, and thus vulnerable. So the initial challenges were, as for most, setting up testing and procuring PPE, starting from scratch you know, without any help. And both of those efforts were difficult and procurement continues to be challenging. Um, You know, we're competing against all the other cities and states in the United States and and around the world. But those are the two initial, I think, biggest challenges. Then, you know, increasing our capacity for medical care. So we turned our convention center into a medical facility. We had to have a big push initially on setting up emergency shelters in our in our rec centers, so basically in gyms for the homeless population. We worked with our garment industry uh, and advanced manufacturing so that they help us produce um, face coverings and face shields. And now the challenge is turning more towards scaling up some of the response on things like home delivery of senior meals, for which there's a great demand, increasing the number of uh, strike teams, as we call them, that can be deployed to senior care facilities to do rapid testing or to do testing, I should say, of the of the population there. And an increasing focus, uh, which we've had from the beginning, but we have a number of programs that are getting underway now to 
help the lowest income Angelinos who have, um, who are now even, um, you know, have even less income than they did before. So we, we've had an eviction and moratorium in place for quite some time. That's now a state level order as well. We've had all kinds of support for small businesses in, in part in helping them get the federal support. And then the mayor has been fundraising himself from private individuals and foundations for something we call the Angelino Fund, which is just cash assistance to the poorest of, of the poor. Another challenge that is coming up uh, is the city budget. Mayor Garcetti released his proposed budget this week, and they're going to be cuts in services and furloughs of city workers. So that's going to be very hard. And I know cities around the country are getting together to try to um, appeal to Congress and the and the administration for direct uh, fiscal help for for cities. And then we're also working to develop a smart approach to to reopening, which is which is very challenging. So many things to follow up with you on. First and foremost, do you have enough tests in LA? And do you have enough PPE, or are there still issues with getting enough of these things? On testing, it seems like we're doing pretty well. We're testing uh, 12,000 people. We have the capacity to test 12,000 people a day, which is a lot. And we've done 87,000 tests so far just in these government testing centers that are free. But then if you add on top of that what the private hospitals and doctors are doing, we probably are over... 100,000 tests. So that's pretty good um, for the United States, um, given that we don't have any, you know, we don't have a federal program. And we did that just basically ourselves with our firefighters, you know, to start with. So I think we're doing okay there. PPE continues to be a challenge. We have the lead on some good contracts, I think, but it there there are just challenges from from all over with that one. So we're, you know, we've we've lost contracts because We've had to, you know, we've we've been outbid by other, you know, U.S. municipalities, and then we've, you know, I know some not in L.A. but nearby, there have been supplies that have been seized by FEMA, and then some of what we've gotten was counterfeit. So it's just it's it continues to be tricky, but we've got great people who are working on it and trying to work their way through all of that. In addition to competing against other municipalities for the supplies that you need. Are there still areas where you can cooperate? Because we typically think of cities as cooperating with each other. Oh, of course. And let me make clear. I mean, we don't know that we're we're competing against other municipalities. We're just told by the supplier that, you know, we got a better offer from, you know, from from somewhere else. So it's not it's not an active competition in that way. And of course, the way this should be run is, you know, with the government that has the biggest purchasing power and could get the best prices, which is the federal government. And then we wouldn't, you know, it seems silly to waste taxpayer money, you know, paying more for something that we, we shouldn't have to pay more for because of the way the system is set up right now. So it's not an ideal situation. But but yes, the cities have been very cooperative with each other in a lot of ways. I mean, domestically, like I said, we are getting together when we want to you know, altogether try to advocate for for something like, in this case, as I said, federal assistance. Um, there's a lot of uh, lessons learned and a lot of, you know, sharing of uh, best practices, both domestically um, and internationally. So that's, we feel like we're all in it together. But, you know, there are times where we, um, you know, on the, just on the procurement side, we, we end up, like I said, unwittingly um, competing against each other. 
And to follow up on the budget, you mentioned the budget includes cuts. It's hard to imagine having to cut, even though the cities are losing revenue because of things that have been canceled that would traditionally bring in revenue, like events. How tough is that going to be? It's going to be really tough. You know, so our expenses are going up dramatically. Some of that is going to be reimbursed by FEMA. At the same time, we are losing, you know, sales tax and hotel tax and, you know, all the ways that we we typically, you know, generate revenue. So it's not a good situation. And we, like I said, there there is a concerted effort to appeal to the next CARES package that there is direct fiscal help to to cities, which are you know also big employers, um, and so to, so we don't want to have to let go of people as as we need them more than ever. And where is LA right now in terms of flattening the curve? I meant to ask you this a moment ago, but in terms of flattening the curve and really staunching the spread of the of the virus, I think we're doing quite well. The rate of increase in our cases is lowering. Uh, It's now been single digits for the past um, week or so. So the absolute number of cases continues to rise, but the pace is slowing. And if you compare us to New York City, we have, you know, which is obviously the the, been the biggest epicenter, we have six deaths per about 100,000 people, and they have 174 deaths per 100,000 people. So far, importantly, we have not overwhelmed the healthcare system. We have 232 ICU beds available as of yesterday and about a thousand ventilators um, available. People are basically very supportive of, of what the mayor has done. And, uh, and it's because of them that we've been able to, to make this kind of progress. And something else I want to follow up on, you mentioned making plans for the city to begin reopening. And how is the city handling the pressure? Because there are some in varying quarters who are really pushing for cities around the country and states around the country to reopen for business. Well, we obviously want to reopen the city. We we, we absolutely do. Um, and the mayor says that every day, but he's going to be guided by the science and by the health professionals and not by you know, a few angry voices, we overall have a responsibility to keep our constituents safe. And as the mayor said repeatedly, that what you cannot replace is a human life. Um, you know, these are our, these are our neighbors, our grandparents, our friends, we, and that's, um, that's a duty that we have. And if we open up too quickly, uh, cases will spike again, and we'll be back where we started only with, you know, more people dead. Uh, and that's exactly what the 1918 pandemic shows when you compare how different cities reacted. So, you know, we have we have overwhelming support for the stay at home orders. We did. There was a survey done by a local university that says that 95 percent of Angelinos agreed with that order. So we are as impatient as anybody in, in wanting to reopen. But we we can't do it. Um, you know, we have to do it very carefully. and We can't do it too soon. And there's an example internationally, I believe it's Singapore, where they started reopening things and then they saw another spike uh, of COVID cases. Exactly. And I want to ask you a little bit about the work that you do as the Deputy Mayor of International Affairs. You know, are you talking with your counterparts in cities around the world about how they're handling things? Yeah, I am in a bunch of different um, forums. So, the mayor is the chair of uh, a group called the C40, which is a climate change 
um, organization of uh, nearly a hundred of the biggest uh, megacities in the world. They have been really helpful in convening mayors. Uh, so we've had a couple of calls, the first one with about 45 cities from around the world. So, you know, Milan and Seoul and Paris and Jakarta and London and um, Johannesburg and many, many others, Guadalajara, 45 mayors from around the world um, to talk about their COVID response. And then we we had a second call um, with Mayor Garcetti chaired with with his counterparts. My office stood up uh, a just a WhatsApp group and we have about 25 cities on that now that are sharing on a daily basis, asking for advice and sharing their plans. And then we're doing a lot of individual reaching out to cities and countries, especially now to kind of learn their lessons for reopening. So we're going to be talking to Denmark and we have a call with Guangzhou in China. So just to get different perspectives on how they are, you know, taking that next step for, for some of the places that are beginning or ready to reopen. You've written about more and more cities working together, cooperating, particularly in areas of foreign policy and diplomacy and tackling some of the world's toughest issues that are concentrated in cities. And would you say that dealing with COVID-19 is just another example of how cities are coming together to talk best practices and deal with tough issues? Yeah, I think it is. I think it's, you know, it's another one of these global phenomenon like migration or climate change or inequality um, that end up really roosting in cities and that cities have to solve because we have we have responsibilities to our citizens. I think the way it's different that I've been thinking about is it's not just global, it's also universal. So Whereas climate change could show up differently in different places as fires or floods or drought, um, this one is showing up more or less the same way everywhere. So, you know, it could be quite a unifying moment for the globe. I wish it was that, and, and maybe it is in some ways, but it's, uh, it's unusual. I can't think of another time in my lifetime where we've had this situation where you know, many, many, you know, billions of people are going through a very similar experience. And of course, depending on, you know, where they live and their, you know, what resources they have, it could be harder or less hard. But, you know, we, we, so many of us are, you know, staying at home and, and, and coping. It's, it's really, it's really a unique moment. Before you were deputy mayor, you were the U.S. ambassador to ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. And I want to ask about the COVID-19 pandemic as a potential threat to national security. And there's been a lot of talk about the situation that we're currently in changing great power politics. Uh, What are your thoughts about that? I think this crisis is exacerbating dynamics that were already underway. The Trump administration has shown very little interest in global leadership the way, you know, pretty much all presidents have since since the end of World War II. He has not been particularly supportive of allies. He has attacked global institutions and in this crisis has not has not shown an interest in leading the world the way for example the Obama administration did with Ebola, where it was really, they were very out in front and mobilized, you know, everybody around that response. And by recently, you know, seeking to defund the World Health Organization, 
that you know that's a threat to make the to make the you know the situation worse for for many. And China has been stepping into that vacuum, uh, has been from the beginning, and is doing so even more aggressively now, uh, especially because they, you know, would like to gloss over their their earlier underreporting and cover up of of the at the beginning of the pandemic. And I worry a lot about the loss of U.S. leadership and and soft power and moral authority because those things were a great value to me when I was posted in in Asia. What we what we had that that China didn't have were longtime friends and allies, and we had those friends in part because they believed in what we stood for. Uh, we were predictable, um, even even if we're of course imperfect. But that all said, I think China is not going to have an easy time stepping into our shoes. And you know, global leadership is hard, and you know they've made some mistakes in using this COVID as a diplomatic tool. And, you know, I have hope that that we will come out of this stronger as a country and ready to lead again, if maybe in a different way than we have before. And speaking of leadership, and particularly on the, the COVID pandemic, I read a story recently about where the countries that are led by women have generally fared better in terms of the response to the epidemic uh, than countries led by men, uh, specifically noting Germany with Angela Merkel and New Zealand with Jacinda Ardern. I'm just curious to get your thoughts on on and perspective on on that development. Yeah, I saw the headline, but I didn't read the article. I'm actually really curious to know what, how they, you know, what they attributed that to. But uh, I can't say it surprises me. Um, but I am, but I'm curious how they, you know, how they ended up analyzing that. Keeping our conversation on national security, but switching gears a bit, I raised the issue of women because um, you co-founded and currently co-chair the Leadership Council for Women in National Security, better known as LC Wins, uh, a relatively new group that's been around for about a year or so that is focused on the presidential race and asking the presidential candidates, if elected, to committing to gender parity in national security. What made you want to start this group? Well, I saw when I became an ambassador that women were really underrepresented in in the senior ranks of the State Department and and across our national security agencies. I have noticed that when women are in charge, they pay more attention to the to the welfare and to the advancement of women and girls. And then I knew also from a lot of studies that have been done in the private sector that show that diverse teams make better decisions. They, when companies have more women in senior management, they actually literally make more money, more profit. When I was visiting DC after I came back from overseas, and remember we had that huge women's march, it was like the day after I got back, which made me feel so much better. So I got together with a lot of other women who've had similar concerns and we had a series of meetings we met with we had a meeting I remember Julie Smith and I I guess about 30 younger women and they were all encountering the same problems you know ranging from real like serious sexual harassment on the one hand and you know through to just 
feeling like they were not being included and not being given opportunities in the same way um, on the other. And so we've been talking for a while about, you know, how we address this and what kind of uh, an organization we could form. In the meantime, Jenna, Ben Yehuda and I did the Me Too NatSec letter. And I had some time on my hands because this was before I had signed up with, with Mayor Garcetti. So we were kind of working on this effort, um, all of us being very busy with our day jobs. And then Mona Setfen was visiting me. We had written a book together and we had worked in the Clinton administration together. And then um, we were, she was the deputy national security advisor in the Obama administration. And so we worked together, although not at the same time in the Obama administration. And we came up with this idea for the pledge. And after talking with the other um, founders about it, we decided that this was, you know, an idea that was interesting enough and the timing was right as the, you know, the presidential primaries were heating up that we could launch the organization and, and this pledge at the same time. And it's important to note that it's a bipartisan group. That's right. It absolutely is. And we had almost every candidate sign, take sign up for the pledge, and including Bill Weld on the GOP side. The Trump campaign did not respond to us, but we had, you know, really pretty amazing uh, take up. And and since then, candidate uh, Vice President Biden has spoken publicly about, about the pledge. So that's it's all very encouraging. Why would you say that it's so important to have gender parity in national security appointments? Well, I'd say that all the studies have shown that diverse groups make better decisions. And particularly when you have more senior women involved, better decisions are made. So there's no reason to think that that would not be the case in national security as it is in every other place where it's ever been studied. So I'd say that's the main reason. We want better foreign policy. The second reason is it's just a matter of fairness. Like if you want the best, most talented people, you have to look at everybody. So we have managed to assemble an amazing group of women and men, including many women of color in our steering committee and in our honorary advisory committee. So we, we hope to really be able to, to make some change uh, and, and see some progress. That's our sole mission, is to put more women in senior positions of leadership in the national security, in the national security space. So hope to have some luck there. Madam Deputy Mayor Nina Hachigian, thank you so much for being with us here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.